So let me, let me, first of all, welcome to Grace if you're brand new here. Welcome to, yeah, let's do that. Come on, we should do that for people who are brand new. All right. Welcome to the lowest attended holiday weekend service of all churches across America. So we now know who the real Christians are in the room. All right. <laughs> Just so we know, right? Okay. Well, hey, listen, if you, uh, if you, thank you. If you have been uh, invited here today, uh, we are glad that you're here. Let me tell you a little bit about what we do. Uh, Grace is an um, expository Bible teaching church, which means that we uh, run through the Bible. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, we run through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, we do that because of this. We believe that that's the best way to teach you the Bible, and we believe that the Bible is the best way for you to get to know God. And so if you're new here, that's what you can expect from week to week here at Grace. Um, Open your Bibles, if you will, to John, the book of John, chapter 7. As Pastor uh, Mike Price just mentioned, we are starting a brand new series. uh, And that series is called Exposed. And the idea of being exposed, that just sounds horrifying to some of us, doesn't it, right? Uh, The idea of having all of our internal business being known by everybody else Uh, That just does not sound like a good thing. But one of the things that we've noticed and we've seen uh, about Jesus through the book of John is that the closer you get to know uh, Jesus, the more exposed your heart becomes to him. The more more that you tend to uh, see yourself clearly, and sometimes seeing ourselves clearly for the first time is a painful thing, right? Sometimes actually looking inside and going, huh, that really is me, both the good and the bad. And this is why actually marriage and deep relationships like marriage are some of the most sanctifying or holy-making relationships in our life. Why? Because we actually see each other when we live with each other all the time. We tend to see each other not just with the window dressing of the outside, but we tend to also see what's happening on the inside as well. And sometimes what we see on the inside of each other is beautiful, and sometimes what we see on the inside of another person is awful. But that is one of the great and wonderful things about the covenant of marriage and the covenant of relationship in that way is that God himself has placed you together for the purpose of showing each of you the weaknesses that you have in your own lives. Uh, so if you're bummed that your wife sees your cracks and, 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 the, and the problems that are in your personality or your husband sees those things, you need, to, you need to recognize that those things are a gift. That, and it doesn't feel very gifty at times, right? doesn't feel very good sometimes when they can see into you in that way. But the reality is it is because... At, at, you know, if you love with a biblical kind of love, you're not just going to love the window dressing. You're not just going to love the Pinterest view of someone's life. You are going to love um, the hard and the very difficult and the ugly things at the same time. And so one of the things that we're looking at through this series called Exposed is we're looking at how Jesus tends to expose the hearts and minds of the people that are around him. And, 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 and their response to that exposure, because sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? In fact, we're going to look in the text today in John 7, and we're going to see some people really like Jesus and some people don't. Uh, and, and this started in his ministry, and it will continue until he returns again, all right? Well, let's read John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 today. John chapter 7, 1 through 13, and uh, then we'll walk back through it uh, verse by verse. Here we go. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him there. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one, Jesus, works in secret 
if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in Jesus. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, 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 he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly of him. All right, let's pause here for a second, and uh, let's, let's look through these passages. Um, the, first, the first part of this, in chapter 7, verse 1, says, after, after this. What is the after this? Well, this is after six months. So as you, as you finish, go look with me in chapter 6. As you finish here, when it says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he is one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Until the time we pick up in chapter 7, verse 1, six months of time has elapsed. All right? Six months of time has elapsed. And so Jesus has been going about making a name for him um, in Galilee, um, or, or rather in Judea, because he was making himself publicly known for some of the first times. He's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching, but now there, where he was, people want to kill him. The Jewish leaders, they want to kill him for various reasons we'll talk about later. But at this point in time, now he's in Galilee. This is more hometown advantage for him. But he would not go back to Judea because they were seeking to kill him there. Now, let's talk about all these feasts real quick. Um, verse 2, now the Jewish feast of booths. What is this? Well, we've got Passover, we've got Pentecost, and we've got the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. In, in Hebrew, it's Sukkot, right? Sukkot. And Sukkot was uh, taking place around September and October uh, of every year. And it was one of three festivals that God commanded that all the Jewish young men would have to go back to Jerusalem and present themselves before him, right? And so three times a year, there were three mandatory festivals that they had to go to. Well, no matter where they lived, they had to return back to Jerusalem. Now, in this festival, the, the festival of booths, it was designed by God to commemorate something. And if you remember just a minute ago, as I was talking through the communion service, the Hebrew mindset of remembering is more than just nostalgia. It's more than just thinking back over things like, oh yeah, I remember when. But the remembrance in the Hebrew mind was to bring something from the past and make it present in the here and now. And so these festivals uh, were not something that were just, you know, mental constructs. They were actually designed to bring it to the front and center and remind people this is what's happening. And so the Feast of Booths was designed specifically to talk about God taking Israel out of the land of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years and they wandered the desert for 40 years. They wandered the desert in booths, right? In these like man-made kind of like thatch-roofed huts, so what they do is they all gather. Now, the festival, this festival was bigger than any other festival, including Passover festival, and it drew more people than anything else. And so what you have is you have tons of people surrounding Jerusalem, and they're living in these kind of like tent-like makeshift houses. And the reason for that is because God wanted people to not just remember fondly and nostalgically while they lived in wealth and privilege in this time, 
to think back on people from the past and go, oh, wow, that's what they went through. He wanted them to feel it, to experience it. He wanted this to be more than just a mental construct. He wanted it to be an actual experience of their everyday lives. So what I want to do right now, because we're about to look at um, a challenging verse here. And, and the verse basically says that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. And so Jesus is 32 years old right now. This is about six months right now in the text. This is about six months before he's going to be crucified. So the next six months of his life, things are going to begin to accelerate. Things are going to begin to happen all around Jerusalem. People are going to choose sides. I'm on Jesus' side. I'm not on Jesus' side. But over the next six months, as things begin to accelerate, what we begin to see here is that people are basically determining whether they believe in Jesus as the Messiah and as God or not. And if you remember, just many, many weeks ago, when we first started this, Book of John, one of the reasons that we said the main primary reason for the Book of John, for John the Apostle to write this book, was so that you may believe. And so what we're seeing right now is people are beginning to make those decisions. The evidence has been placed on the table. The rationale has been presented. It's going to continue to be presented, but it's been presented. And people are now beginning to make their decisions. But why is it? And you would think that some people who are so close to Jesus, like his brothers, why would they not believe? You might think, well, this is a fantastic argument for uh, Jesus not being who he says he is. That his family members themselves didn't actually believe in him. But what I want to do is I want to talk about maybe possibly a third reason why not. Last week, we talked about sovereignty of God and human freedom. And by the way, I just have to say, not only are you a group of people who want to learn, grow, and change, constantly being transformed, I love that about the, the people at Grace. I think that's something that identifies this church. If you want to grow, go to Grace. If you want to change, drop into the Bible. If you want those kinds of things, and that seems to be the people that God's bringing to this church, but the second, one of the other things that's so exciting to me and was just demonstrated this last week was how kind and amazing you guys are. I love being your pastor, I have to tell you that. This is an amazing church to be able to lead. But one of the things that was so great just this last week, we talked about God's sovereignty and man's freedom. We talked about how they intersect together. We'll recapitulate that in just a second. But I got probably, you know, eight, ten emails from you guys just thanking, saying, man, it was, that was something that my mind had been wrestling with for years and years and years. Just something that just opened up for me. And I just want to encourage you to be that way with other staff people here at Grace, me continually, as well as each other as well. I just want to say thank you for being those kinds of people. Last week, we talked about God's sovereignty and said it's all up to God, right? You know, if we believe that it's just all up to God and we're just kind of passive participants, we just kind of like skate through life and God just does his thing and we're kind of the passive victims or the passive participants or non-participants in his divine plan. And we said, well, the other side of that equation is, you know what, it's really not about God at all. It's kind of all up to me. My job is basically to kind of figure out like how to make my life work, design my life, be the architect of my, of, of my destiny. And what we said was, actually, if you take the one or the other approach, you end up missing God's will because we introduced this, this idea called the doctrine of concurrence, which basically says this, that yes, God is concurrently, at the same time, making choices about your life, your, the will of uh, the, your life, the lives of everyone else around you, and his will for the whole creation. 
God's making all these choices. You simultaneously are making choices and choices and choices and choices. And what happens is as those choices come together, we call this God's will, right? And that's why it's so easy for us to be able to look back on God's will and go, oh, that was God's will. It's very hard for us to look into the future because we don't know when this doctrine of concurrent, these concurrences are going to happen, right? And so for us, we can look back and we go, oh, I, now I see why God was doing that. God's shaping my circumstances, making things unfold in this way. Now I see why I wasn't allowed to do that. Now I see why I was pushed to do this. Because ultimately, we are free to make our own choices, but God is also free to make his own choices. Now, today what I want to do is I want to extend that idea just a little bit further and maybe talk about kind of the nature of uh, of belief, the nature of belief. Now, how does, how does belief come about? Well, you might just think belief comes about by presenting the best possible arguments, and as you or the pastor presents the best possible arguments for belief in God, people will suddenly one day rationally go, oh my gosh, yes, I believe now in God. And for some people, that seems to actually be the kind of way that it happens. Um, but for many people, it's, it's not like that. It comes through a crisis. It comes through family experiences. Maybe for some of you, you grew up in the church, and so there's not really a, a day that you can identify and look back on and go, man, that was my big day of belief. But I just kind of, always from a child, just kind of learned about Jesus and kind of grew into my relationship with him. Others of us, like me, I had one of those aha moments, one of those like desperate for God, I need you kind of moments, and he spoke to me in a very powerful way that overnight changed my life. It was but the point is, is that we come to belief in God, belief in Jesus, faith in Christ through a multiple different avenues. But there's one primary, there's one way in which it is unified across all categories of people. And it doesn't matter if you are black or you are white or you're Hispanic or you're Asian. It doesn't matter your cultural background, your economic conditions. This one thing, essentially across the board, is what unites us first and foremost to God and then one to another. So in order for us to get there, uh, I, want to, uh, I want to give you a, a thought experiment right now. This comes from Australian philosopher Frank Jackson. In 1982, he came up with this thought experiment, okay? And I'm going to present it to you and we're going to think through it, all right? It's a fictional story, so it's not real, right? I want to introduce you to um, a neurophysiologist named Mary. Mary is a researcher and a scientist. She is both um, the experimenter and the experimentee, all right? And so Mary lives in this glass box, and her only, uh, and, and everything inside the glass box is black and white, black and white, nothing of color anywhere. But she's a neurophysiologist, so she can understand color because she can, she can measure it and she can do things like that. Mary's only external outlet to see the outside world is a 12-inch black and white television. So everything that Mary sees in her world is black and white. Mary observes some of her patients through the black and white 12-inch monitor, and she sees them standing in, in front of what they're, what they're crying out to be these beautiful blue skies. And she observes that these are beautiful blue skies. Why? Because she's able to look at them and she's able to measure, we can't do this really, but she's able to measure the neurotransmitter levels. She's able to measure the central nervous system responses of somebody looking at a beautiful blue canvas. And then she's able to see how people neurophysiologically respond to sunsets. And then she writes down all of her data. And she says, for me, what a sunset looks like is this kind of neurological uh, effect and this kind of neurological, uh, neurochemical response inside the brain. 
And so for her, she has this incredible experience where every single time somebody looks at something, because she lives in the black and white world, anytime someone looks at something that seems to be filled with color, she can identify it and go, yes, that is a blue sky. Why? Because she knows the physiological responses of the body when a body looks at a blue sky. Now, I want you to imagine with me, and I'm going to do an informal survey right now in a minute, but I want you to imagine with me that somebody lets Mary, poor Mary, stuck in her glass box, I want you to imagine that somebody lets Mary out of her box into the regular world. Mary walks into the regular world for the first time. So question, how many of you think, how many of you think that Mary's looking at a blue sky or a sunset or a piece of art would be different than what she observed in the laboratory? How many of you think that would be the case? Raise your hands. Okay, right, okay. So you're right online, and, and this, this, is, this is what this philosopher was trying to basically describe, and that is that the physicalist response or the materialist view of the world, that really the world is just how you describe it, is not really true, that there's so much more to it. In fact, when Mary went out and she looked at the blue sky, she saw this for the first time. Now before this, she could look at this and describe how the nervous system responds to a blue sky or how neurotransmitter levels inside the brain rise or fall. This is the first time Mary saw the sunset. Beautiful. This is the first time she experienced art. Right? A little disturbing, Edvard Munch, right? A little disturbing for the first time, right? Okay? So for her, she could see all of this stuff. She could describe it, but she had no idea what the color was like. I would say to you that not only are you correct, but you are correct in the ultimate. That to be able to understand something simply by describing it is never to encapsulate the totality of the experience itself. In fact, in fact, you can describe something perfectly and not know it at all. And that's exactly the same thing that faith is like. See, you can describe and you can read the Bible and you can know about God without ever having an actual experience with him. You can know about God because you can, you, can, you can describe the things that the Bible says about him. As somebody who's not a Christian, you can say God is powerful by definition. God is maybe good. He is... He is um, holy, whatever, whatever words that you want to use to describe God, you can describe God, and you can describe God very well. But for some of us in the room, what that means is that you have a great description about God, but you've never actually known God. You've never had God light your entire life on fire like a bright orange sun that lights up the entire sky. You've never had God just ignite your heart in such a way that you saw blue for the first time. You see, Jesus' brothers knew about Jesus. They experienced Jesus on an everyday kind of basis. They knew the facts about Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. But they didn't know him. And I wonder if the same thing's true for some of us in the room here now. I wonder if we have not just kind of memorized and learned because of our culture certain facts and data about Jesus. Some of that data, because it's come from really warped and messed up sources, is going to be all bent and twisted. So I wonder if our perceptions of Jesus, even our understandings of who he is, are not completely off, or maybe even this, 
you have all the right perceptions about God, but you don't actually know him because he's never set your world on fire. He's never shown you the true majesty of what it's like to be in a relationship with him. And if you're in your mind right now just thinking, man, I, I really don't know the answer to that question. And that should be the foremost question of your everyday life. It should be the foremost question of your everyday experience. Because everything in your life, everything in your world, will be placed into a different context when you understand and know and love Jesus. So the one thing that every single person has in common is the ability to see in a different way. The ability to see in a different way. Because you might know the right facts. You see, our scientists knew, Mary knew all the right facts about a blue sky. She could describe it to you. She could tell you what the neurophysiological responses of the human body were when somebody looked at the sky. But she could never describe the true experience of knowing the sky. The Bible says that the bridge from going from just being able to describe it to being able to truly have a relationship and an experience of God is this thing called faith. And it is the one thing that unites every single Christian in the world. It doesn't matter what kind of Christian you are. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, faith is the one thing that unites us together. And we're not talking about that like Kierkegaardian jump into the abyss, right? This is not like blind faith. This is reasoned faith. But faith nonetheless. And so for us, I want you to remember that faith is that thing. And remember, we talked about this before. Faith is just one of those Bible words. And we use it, we, we use it all the time in, in regular parlance. But, but faith is this Bible concept. And for some reason, our minds just get all twisted up about religious things. So just think of it this way. Faith is trust put into action. Faith is trust put into action. Faith is trust put into action. So the way that you will know that you've gone from one category to the other, from the category of just simple observer or even actually really accurate observer of Jesus to a relationship with Jesus is that now you begin to trust him with your life. You trust him with your money, which is a huge thing for people today because we, we like it. it. It draws all kinds of things like security and safety and meaning and purpose. And if you trust, because money's never about money, it's always about trust. You trust him with your money. You trust him with your time. Some of you guys are just so overwhelmed and feel like the day just gets so packed in. But the reality is you need to take a step back and go, how can this day be different by me trusting in Jesus for my time? What would it look like for you trusting in relationships with one another? I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to date today. That's a hard thing, guys. That's a challenging, like, dating is hard. I've been married for 23 years, and I don't ever want to date again. <laughs> Seriously. If, heaven forbid, my wife died, I'm going to be like single Pastor Mike, right? Because dating's just hard because you've got to trust you got to trust this other person that you're trying to get to know that you're not getting the Pinterest view, you're really getting the soul stuff. So that after the relationship begins to kick off and you've been married for three months and you start seeing the cracks and all those other things, right? You can go, huh, okay, I'm, I'm still all in. I'm still all in. But see, when you move from just observation and intellectual assent about God to actually belief and trust in him, that changes everything. John 7, verse 2. So we've done verse 1. All right, here we go. So, so here we go, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. 
So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, Jesus. All right. For not even his brothers believed in him. So, so the first thing that I want you to see here is this whole idea that the disciples really don't understand Jesus because they don't understand about Jesus. Remember, we've, we've talked about all these miracles that Jesus has done, and one of the things that we said about the miracles is that he didn't do the miracles simply to show that he could do them. He did the miracles to show who he was. And so while his brothers are watching Jesus be a magician and watching him do all of these miraculous things, what ends up happening is that they just see the performance but not the person. And Jesus gets this. He sees that they don't know who he is. But they're, they're, what they're saying to him basically is, you need to be a celebrity, Jesus. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Jesus didn't seek to be known openly or to be popular. Jesus didn't seek to be the regional magician of all the people or make everyone happy by doing magic tricks. Jesus didn't want those things, but his disciples are like, guy, if you want... See, Jesus is doing these things and, and, and he's performing these incredible miracles for about six months. We don't even know what some of these things are, right? He's performing these miracles, but he's doing them with like one-on-one, two-on-one. We hear about the feeding of the 5,000, but there are many more miracles that Jesus did that, was just, that were just kind of one-on-one things. And his brothers come to him one day and say, hey, if you want to be popular, if you want to be famous, why are you worried about doing miracles to this guy? Do it for all these other people. Remember that 5,000 thing? You were on track with that. You were on point with that. Do that. Make yourself famous. Make sure you're out there. And Jesus goes, Jesus' response, verse 6 says, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. In other words, I'm here to do the will of my Father, and I'm going to show everyone everything that God wants me to show, but there's a time frame, and I'm listening to him right now. And then he turns it around and says, but your time is always here, right? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. So my time's not come yet. My father's not told me to make it public, everything. Your time's come right now. I mean, your, you, you, your time is your time. You, you don't even listen to my father. You're not interested in, in timing things. You're not interested in listening to his will. My job is to listen to his will. Your job, not so much. And the reason he says this is because the brothers right there in verse 4, or verse 5 rather, say, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus knew that they didn't believe. But it's interesting because even though his brothers say that he should go, look at where they're trying to send him. They're trying to send him back to Judea. And some scholars actually believe this was an attempt on Jesus' brothers to kill him. How do we know that? Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And he's got his brothers saying, hey, bro, why don't you go back and do some miracles in Judea? Why don't you go on over there? Jesus is like, I'm not stupid. You know, I know what you guys are trying to do here, right? But if you think you had a dysfunctional family, <laughs> got some dysfunctional family in this area somewhere, right? Right? So if you, if you think you had a dysfunctional family, Jesus' family is right there with you. <laughs> That was awesome, Michelle. Uh, I went to high school with Michelle. So, like, you know, we like, uh, we've, we've been around each other for a long time. All right. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time's not yet come, but your time's always here. You guys aren't listening, so you get to do whatever you want. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And so when we're looking at this whole thing about being exposed, one of the things that we see 
is that Jesus begins to tell people the true nature of their hearts. He, he begins to show them the true nature of their hearts. The Bible says that God doesn't look at the outside of our hearts. He looks at the inside. And so when Jesus is sitting with you, he says, I'm going to take all this good and bad stuff and I'm going to bring it to the surface. And sometimes when people who don't want to change and aren't wanting to be transformed and are not willing to submit and are not, are not desiring to believe in him, they push back on that and they say, I don't want to look at that. And we've all done that at one point or another in our life. That's not something that we can judge anybody else for and look at them and get angry with them because we've, we've all done that. Jesus has given us stuff and we've gone, no, no, I don't want to look at that right now. It's too hard. It's too much. It's too difficult. On the screen, I want you to see a, a passage from um, Matthew, chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. It uses this language of seeing and hearing. For this people's heart has become calloused. Jesus is talking about like just hardness of heart. And I don't know if you can, I, I don't know if you can identify with having a hard heart, but I can. Just that, that, that like, I'm not moving from where I am. I'm right. You're wrong. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. They're seeing in black and white. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes in color, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Blessed are you because you see and you hear the things of God. Because you've gone from the black and white perspective to a colored worldview. And that color worldview allows you to have the eyes to see, the willingness by faith to trust in Jesus for every category and area of your life. If you have some big giant hidden sin in the background that you've never confessed to anyone, you need to trust that no matter what the consequences of blowing that secret up are, that Jesus will come in and he will be for you more than what you will lose in the process. Trust is way more than just intellectually assenting or knowing about God. That's easy. Faith, on the other hand, belief, on the other hand, is a whole different thing. This is kind of how the whole thing wraps up here. Verse 7, uh, says, or verse 8. Um, they've asked Jesus to go up to the festival. Verse 8, uh, you go up to the festival. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. See, the Jewish leaders were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There's a reason for this. And there was much muttering about him from the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, no, he's leading people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, no one spoke about him openly. So what we see right here is that Jesus is, Jesus is dividing people by his very nature. And so the big idea for this entire exposed series that we're going to be looking at here, the big idea is who Jesus is exposes who you are. Who Jesus is exposes who you are. You can't walk in a relationship with Jesus and not have him expose different parts of your heart. Now, it's really interesting because here, um, the Feast of Booths, I'm going to read to you from just a, a commentary real quick, just up on the screen. It's from uh, an IVP academic press commentary, and it says this. The feast, the feast had a double purpose, to, remind Israel's, to remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in Booths and to rejoice before the Lord and after the harvest, in particular the grape, olive, and fruit harvests. It also involved looking forward to a new exodus, 
the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all of its attendant blessings. Just keep that up there, if you would. Okay? So I want you to notice a couple of things. This takes place, this feast takes place in September, October, and so it's right after the harvest. So this is the wealthiest Israel is at any given time. This is a time when all of Israel comes to the temple and tithes a 10% of everything that they have. And what ends up happening here is that as people have gathered together for the biggest party, it's seven days long, begins with a, it begins with a fast, I mean, a Begins with a Sabbath, five days of partying, and then another Sabbath uh, on the other end of it. And what ends up happening is that as they're gathered together, the, the wine is flowing, the fruits that have gathered are, are abundant, everyone is feeling like this great rejoicing that's taking place. And the reason why the Jewish leaders are looking for Jesus here is because this would be the perfect time for Jesus to come and say, here I am. Why? Because this also, this feast, was the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all of its attendant blessings. So the, the gathering, watch this, the gathering was a remembrance that brought the past into the present, right? Brought the past into the present and then anticipated from the present into the future and said one day God will come back again and that will be the day of human flourishing. That will be the time when all of the greatest blessings in all of human history will be unleashed. And they were waiting for Jesus to come. And so Jesus showing up kind of in secret at this point in time because his time had not yet come. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacle, or Hebrew Sakad, right? He is the ultimate satisfaction of that. Jesus is the greatest prosperity, the greatest blessing, the greatest truth, the greatest hope, and eventually, in a future sense, the greatest shalom that all of us will ever experience. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we, I ask that you would just take these words of your scripture and drive them deeply into our heart. Father, I pray that um, this would not just be a lecture, but instead, Lord, you would use these words and your remembrances of your Holy Spirit to bring to us a great sense of our condition before you. Lord, I love that you expose our hearts because you don't expose them for the purpose of just shaming us or making us feel like we're not worthy. You reveal them so that we can become more like you, so we can release the things that we need to release so that we can embrace the things that we need to embrace, Lord Jesus. Father, forgive us for choosing to live in a world that's black and white. When we have color in front of us, help us to have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, that we may know your truth deeply, and may it change us forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.